This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nobel Prize winning scientist and geneticist Sir Paul Nurse. Paul joined me to explore and answer the question, what is life? We discuss in depth Paul's recent book, What is Life? Understand Biology in Five Steps. We also discuss his career as a geneticist and what inspires him about biology and the natural world. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with me, Amy Mullins, and it is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome onto the program Sir Paul Nurse. Paul is a geneticist and cell biologist, and his discoveries, along with colleagues, have helped to explain how the cell controls its cycle of growth and division, and that's something we will get into in just a moment. Really wonderfully, Paul's contribution to cell biology and cancer research were recognised in 1999 with a knighthood and also his endeavours relating to the discovery of cell cycle regulatory molecules saw him jointly awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 2001. And since 2011, he has been the director and CEO of the Francis Crick Institute, which I believe he is at right now in London. And I'm going to be speaking with Paul about his book, which was released at the end of last year here in Australia. It's called What is Life? Understand Biology in Five Steps. I really can't wait to talk about all of these topics with you, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it and welcome onto the show. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. As someone who has a real keen interest in science and particularly biology and even more particularly in fungi, I've got to say I really enjoyed this book. But that said... And I wonder if this is a common thread, and I certainly have heard anecdotally some people say similar things, but from a personal perspective, when I studied science, including things like biology and chemistry in secondary school or high school, a lot of it didn't really resonate and nothing particularly then inspired me in the way that it does in my adult life. However, reading this book, it seems like maybe that wasn't the case for you. So I wondered, when were you first inspired and excited by biology and the cells, the idea of cells that you cover in this book? And do you think that's a common experience or is there kind of a, a, I guess, a diversity of experiences in terms of when people get, I guess, enlightened by or excited by and inspired by the ideas of science and in particular biology? Well, what I think is, I'm not sure we teach science particularly well at school, to be quite honest with you. And that applies to biology as well as the um, other sciences, physics and chemistry and so on. And I think part of the problem is that when we teach it. It's like uh, communicating a lot of facts that are chiseled in stone, and it somehow lacks life. And in this book, I, I wanted really to say where ideas and things come from. But you asked me, when did I get first interested in science? And it's quite a difficult question to answer, because I, I, I've always been interested in the natural world. 
And I start this book actually with a story, really. It's a sort of half metaphor, half reality um, in a description of a yellow butterfly flying in to the garden um, where I was sitting when I was um, a teenager or perhaps a little bit before. And when I started to wonder about what it is that um, makes that butterfly alive, what, what, what is characteristic about it? And how, for that matter, does that butterfly relate to me? Because I'm alive too, and so I share some commonalities with that butterfly. But that was just part of my interest, excitement about science, which was outside school, probably, uh, as much as inside school. I was also interested in looking at the night sky, looking at the stars, looking at the planets moving around. And all this was just fascinated me. I was also fascinated by other things as well. I'm actually very curious person so it, it, it isn't just science but it certainly was early on I couldn't have been much older than 11 or 12 and it has stayed with me but really the point I would like to emphasize school teaching of science in school has got to convey excitement and I'm not sure it always does and that's something we have to think about. Yes, you really made that point so clearly, the idea that it's all about life and the natural world. And if you have this really strong connection with the natural world, you are really connecting with science and connecting with cells. Obviously, the first chapter of this book is talking intricately about cells and how they're made up and what they do. So maybe we should jump into that first chapter, given it's such a foundational chapter and will spring us into the latter concepts that you talk about because I, I should reference as you say in the title or the subtitle there are five steps or five ideas so I, I wanted to I guess take us through if you don't mind some of these ideas starting with the cell and I guess maybe I'll point out a couple of favorite facts from that chapter which I was just astounded by one of them was that when you're looking at an egg that a chicken has laid and you crack it open, that yellow yolk inside is one single cell, which I just can't even get my mind around. And the other fascinating fact that follows was that an individual nerve cell, or at least some of them that exist in the human body, can reach from the base of your spine all the way to the tip of your big toe, which means one of those individual nerve cells can be about a meter long. This is something that I had never heard of. And I wonder how many others would encounter these amazing ideas and facts in their own lives or beyond their higher education. Well, it's mind boggling, isn't it? I mean, mm. we have this idea, this picture of a cell as being tiny, and indeed, most of them are, to be fair. And um, yet some of them are really huge. And when you have a boiled egg in the morning for breakfast, you are looking at a cell. Um, but most of us don't realize that. In fact, I first thought I saw a cell uh, when I was at school and looked under a microscope at a sort of squash of um, a, a root tip um, from an onion, I think. And I saw these arrays of, of boxes, which were cells. And I thought that was the first cell I'd seen. It was only later I realized I'd been looking at one um, at most of my breakfast when I was eating an egg. And of course, the nerve cell in your leg that you refer to is incredibly long. But most cells are much smaller. They are really 10, 20, um, 30 microns, we call it. That's a, a millionth of a meter. So they are really, really small. Uh, and we are, in fact, made up of, of, of billions of cells. But just some of them 
are large and some of them we see every day when we have an egg. And you do say that all human beings have begun from a single cell as well. Well, I do, because I want to excite you with the idea of a cell. Uh, you know, if you're not interested in what you were once like when you were just a fertilised egg in your mother's body, and if you're not excited by that, then what will you be excited about? <laughs> I mean, we were all once a single cell. So I, I think we should be interested in cells. Oh, I agree. After reading this chapter, I was very excited by cells. I think it was probably one of my favourite chapters because there are so many as you say, differences, but also similarities in these concepts. And that's what is really fascinating. I would love to hear about your experiences studying cells, because um, as you've said, uh, you are a geneticist, but you've looked at in great depth, the genetics of yeast. Um, <laughs> and what does that have to do with cells? And also what relevance do yeast cells have with, for example, human cells? Yes, it's a very good question. Well, I, the reason I got into cells was because I was thinking, what is an important problem in biology? And you know, all living things reproduce. It's a characteristic of life, isn't it? And mm. uh, the simplest example of that reproduction is um, around the cell, because the cell is the um, simple, basic unit of life. It's life's atom is what I sometimes call it. And when a cell divides, it's the simplest example of biological reproduction. So when I was thinking of what I should do in my research life, I thought, well, understanding how a cell controls its reproduction from one to two is uh, understanding a very fundamental feature of all life. And that seemed to be something that was worth investing my time in. So that's how I, I started thinking about the problem. And then I thought, well, this could be quite complicated because when I started that work, we didn't know anything about it, to be quite um, frank with you. And so perhaps the best approach is to take the, uh, to look at a very simple system. And I chose yeast because yeast is rather easy to investigate. It's got fantastic genetics and it grows rapidly. It's cheap to work with. But despite that simplicity, it shares many features in common um, with all um, other fungi, because yeast is a fungus, um, other plants and animals, including our cells. In other words, the cells that make up fungi, uh, plants and animals, all have um, many common features. And so studying yeast, um, when I started, I thought just might be relevant to human cells. And that did turn out to be the case. Although, to be honest with you, uh, most people at the time when I started weren't quite so sure that it would be um, as similar as I've just explained, but that did turn out to be so. Yes. Well, you also talk about, and you've just mentioned there, cell division being the basis of the growth and development of all living organisms. And um, you do talk about the fact that cell division can be seen in a positive light, of course, because it means that the cells are dividing and replicating and then fulfilling certain functions, but it can also have negative consequences, for example, in cancer, where cancer is caused by the uncontrolled growth and division of cells. So I wonder if you could share with us the function of cells and how you can see such different positive and negative functions within a human body when it comes to cells. Well, 
actually the basis of most things that we do can find their origins with cells. So the way we work can be seen in the functioning of individual cells that then make up tissues, that then make up organs. And then, of course, the organs together make up an, an organism, including a human being. So cells are central to ourselves as a, as a living thing. But, of course, cells can go wrong. And in, in the case of cancer, what happens is that uh, there's damage to the genes that control cell growth and cell reproduction because every time a cell divides it actually copies its genes and separates them into two newly dividing cells these genes are important for uh, do, uh, uh, regulating and uh, controlling uh, many aspects of what cells do now there's a subset of genes and us humans have got over 20,000 genes there's a subset of them maybe 300 maybe 400 in humans that are very important for um, cell reproduction and controlling cell reproduction. And if these genes um, get damaged in particular ways, then um, certain cells can go out of control. So they grow and reproduce when they shouldn't be. I mean, obviously growth and reproduction is very important if uh, in the, uh, a baby growing to become an adult or if you um, cut yourself in repairing wounds and repairing damage. But that's because um, it's occurring in the right place and at the right time. But in the case of cancer, the damage to these controlling genes results in cells growing and dividing and reproducing themselves um, in the wrong place and at the wrong time. And that fundamentally forms a tumour. So the, the basic processes which are the basis of our life, when they are damaged, can form cancer, which, of course, challenges our life. So that's that's the paradox. Mm, it's a really interesting one too. And I did love your example in the book where you were saying if you got a paper cut on your finger from this book on that piece of paper you're holding, well, the cells in your body are the ones that are fixing that wound and creating the skin that covers over the cut in your finger. So it's really exciting and you know fascinating to know that it's part of healing as much as it's part of malignancy when things go wrong and um, a challenge, certainly a challenge for medicine. It really is. And it's something we never think about, isn't it, really? Mm. I mean, they, they, they keep us alive and um, in, in many ways. And when it goes wrong, of course, it um, can challenge being alive. Yes, we certainly take it for granted. And one of the things I loved, and it, it, you've just mentioned their genetics, obviously being a key component within cells. And let's jump into that chapter because that is the next idea that you talk about in this idea of what is life. And you give some really interesting historical examples of where our concepts of inheritance and genetics developed and how it did across time in science. And uh, there is a very interesting person by the name of Gregor Mendel from what is now the Czech Republic and was, you say, was the first person to make some sense of the mysteries of inheritance and interestingly was studying in depth um, something which wouldn't really occur to, I guess, many people today to do, which is to study 10,000 different pea plants. Could you share with us what was so special about the experiments that he was conducting and what they told us about genes and cells? I'd be delighted to, to do that, Amy, um, because 
one of the things I've tried to do in this book is to actually trace the origins of some of these ideas, because often people think everything's been discovered and invented in the last two, three decades. And mm. that really isn't the case. We were talking of cells. They were discovered in 1665 in Oxford, actually, the, the town in, in which I, I live. But in the case of genes, the idea of genes has its origins. It wasn't completely formed then. This monk, Gregor Mendel, he uh, it was in a monastery in Bruno, which was then in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, uh, now in the Czech Republic. And this gardening monk belonged to an order of, of teachers uh, and scientists, actually. I didn't really fully appreciate that till I read into this. And he was encouraged to do experiments in the monastery. So he had a very big greenhouse and a very big garden. And I visited the garden in the 1980s in the middle of the Cold War when I was a, um, a young researcher. And I was really astonished by how big the uh, facilities were for encouraging um, Mendel's research. And what he did is he, he was interested in the inheritance of characteristics from one generation to another uh, in, in a variety of plants, but he um, settled on study of the pea plant. And he, he took a sort of very physical approach to this problem. He counted what he saw. He, he was sort of quantitative. Biologists often at that time particularly described what they saw. And what he did was not only describe, but counted. So by doing that, he realized that if he crossed plants with, say, different colors of flowers together, um, and then studied uh, the progeny produced in the subsequent generations, that um, often those colors segregated with very fixed and clear ratios, ratios like three to one or one to two to one. And this got him thinking. And what he thought is it, it, it seemed to him that there was something going on with particles being segregated so that they would uh, come out in certain specific numbers. He didn't really quite work it out, but it was the origins of the thinking of um, a particulate inheritance that we would now think of, of as genes. But you know, the amazing thing is, although he basically um, opened the door to genetics, nobody took the slightest bit of notice of what he'd done. He'd published it, people had read it, it's even appeared in the Encyclopedia Britannica, but they didn't understand or didn't appreciate the um, revolution that he had started. And it was rediscovered 35 years later by three plant geneticists um, who repeated the experiments. And I think were a bit irritated to find that the gardening monk had done it all 35 years um, previously. And very soon after that, the concept of the gene was clearly born. And we now call it Mendelian genetics, how all these factors segregate in honor of of the gardening monk, the geneticist. And uh, I think it's a great story and really something we should, we should all know. When I visit the Czech Republic, they don't know that they have one of the most famous scientists of all time um, <laughs> in the, the little town of Bruno and they knew nothing about it. Oh, I can't believe he's not on the back of a coin or a note or something. I'm afraid he isn't. I mean, oh. um, I, I actually have got involved in, in, in at the beginnings of a, 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 a little museum now that is in the monastery. So it is now more appreciated, I have to say, but certainly not, uh, not understood or appreciated by the majority of people, despite 
the fact that he did all his work in that little town. That's really interesting and so exciting really to think that these ideas are coming from what is um, to some scientists an unlikely place or to them maybe they were disappointed that they're scooped in science. <laughs> but I, I love the point that you make in the book, which is that science is really iterative and that people are building on previous knowledge and even previous mistakes. And it's constantly a process of drawing from the past. So I really do love that idea, given how relevant it is for today. So it's great that you bring that out and tell us about these wonderful people. And one of the really fascinating parts about that genes chapter for me is something that I, you know, wasn't really aware of and haven't really studied much. But you say that apart from a few specialised exceptions like red blood cells, which as they mature, lose their entire nucleus and therefore all their genes, every cell in your body contains a copy of your entire complement of genes. And together those genes play a big role in directing the development of a fully formed body from a lone fertilised egg cell. It's kind of astounding to think that such critical information that really directs so much of how a human being presents their physical attributes, but also even other parts of how they function and present in the world, could be copied into each cell in your body. It's amazing, isn't it? And of course, what it means is that each cell in the body has this code script of life. But because the cells differ in what they do, um, not all the genes have a role in the different cells. So there's a complex regulatory network that controls which genes are active and which genes are inactive. And it, it's that control which determines how the cells operate and therefore how they contribute um, to the whole organism, how they make an organ, how that organ functions. So uh, although the code script is um, in uh, is in every cell. Um, by the way, in some organisms, uh, there is loss of, of, of some genes. So it's not completely universal, but it, 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 it's very, very common that that's the case. Mm. But the way in which you produce different behaviours is by expressing different sets of genes. It's a, it's a, a very important um, characteristic. For someone who is not initiated into the world of genetics as you are, I'd love to get a better understanding of these concepts that we hear about all the time and that you have spoken about, I know, in previous interviews where you were talking about the double helix. We have all these concepts about genetics and DNA and chromosomes that we learn about at a, a kind of basic level. But I feel that we never really understand or get beyond that idea of the concept or the visual symbol of the double helix. And that certainly has been my experience is that I kind of know what DNA is for but I really don't know where it all fits in the life of the cell. So uh, given that you do make such really fascinating points about DNA and you say that um, if you could somehow join together and then stretch out all the DNA coiled up inside your body's several trillion cells into a single slender thread, it'd be about 20 billion kilometres long, which is long enough to stretch from the earth to the sun and back 65 times. I mean, just another fact that I just love to hear, but could you share with us what these concepts are for those who might be struggling to connect the ideas between the cell, between genes, chromosomes and DNA? 
Yes, this is um, this is very important, of course, because we we sometimes I think get a, a, a bit distracted by the the double helix structure of DNA because it, it, it's iconic. It's um, in in some sense it's quite beautiful, but it distracts us from what the real meaning of the double helix is. Because what it really is it, uh, is if you were to sort of unwind it, it it's a ladder. And the ladder has got rungs going across from one side to another. And um, each of those rungs is made up of what are called bases. And there's a, a base on one side of the uh, rung and another base on the other side. And they uh, are complementary. So that if you have a, a base uh, G, then you have to have another base called C on the other side. And if there's one called A, that's got to uh, have T on the other side. Now, what this basically means is that if you rip those uh, uh, two sides of the ladder apart, um, then you can copy it precisely by putting a G on a C and a T on an A and so on. So you can get reproduction of the code script of, of DNA. So that's the first sort of lesson that, that is really important. The second is that the order of those bases are like letters in words and sentences. It's basically a, a, a digital um, um, information device, um, just like a computer, or just as I just said, words on a page, or for that matter, the um, words I'm speaking now. And a, a sort of universally efficient way to store information is through linear digital storage of, um, of, of different letters, essentially. And in DNA, it's the A, the G, the C, and the T. So what you have with DNA is a molecule that can be precisely reproduced and a molecule that encodes information. And you can see if you put those two ideas together, then you have a molecular basis for heredity. And that was one of the greatest discoveries, some would say the greatest discovery of biology in the 20th um, century and is key to understanding how life works. I don't know if that helps, Amy, but um, <laughs> that would be my summary of it. It does. It does. It certainly does. And in terms of the ideas that link in with genes and DNA, I think it's become more in our everyday language, given this pandemic is uh, still ongoing and certainly a real concern for a number of countries. And even in the news, I've noted that we hear things like variants, genome sequencing, mutations. These are all concepts that are very crucial to this idea of what is life. And it's something that we are talking about in news articles and in news stories every day now. So it's something, interestingly, that's become more relevant in a, a general sense to the general population and people potentially want to understand the meaning of these things, given that it really does affect their everyday life. And one thing I noted was that when we talk about variants of concern with coronavirus, for example, we have heard things like mutant strains. And um, an example would be um, in India where people have identified a so-called mutant. So I wondered whether you could share with us what the word um, mutant or concept of mutant means in genetics, because you do identify that as something that perhaps is misunderstood at times. Well, Amy, you're quite right. This pandemic has suddenly pushed science, particularly biological science, um, 
constantly in the news and and um i now have conversations with people um who would never normally think about it um uh, really wanting to know all of this stuff and um although the pandemic has been dreadful um recognizing um the science underneath it i think has been really uh, quite important and one of the um concepts there is the one you've just mentioned the, the notion of of mutants and mutant strains and mutations and that's closely related to what i just said about the informational content um content of nucleic acid of dna um deoxyribonucleic acid and in the case of the coronavirus um another closely related molecule called rna ribonucleic um acid because uh, uh, the, the, why uh, um, we have these mutant strains is because this code, which I said, if it was DNA, would be A, G, uh, C, and T, um, there will be mistakes made, um, mistakes in the sense that uh, there are differences, um, either caused by a defect in the uh, reproduction of the double helix in the case of DNA molecules, or um, perhaps damage from um, external um uh, uh causes you know like sunlight and radiation and so on so what happens instead of let's say having um a sequence a g c t you might end up with a a c t so you've you've changed one base with another base and that changes the information it's like um uh, if you have a, a a sentence um um i sat on the mat right Mm -hmm. And then you have a mutation in the word mat, so it becomes I sat on the cat. It's a completely different meaning. You're no longer sitting on the mat, on the mat you're sitting on a cat. And that changes um, what the sentence means. And if it was an organism, it would change how the organism operates. And that is a mutant, a mutation that makes a mutant strain with different characteristics. And when you mention the India um, variant of coronavirus, um, we already know that it spreads faster, it infects um, um, more um, rapidly, and so it um, results in more people um, suffering the disease because of that particular mutant strain. And basically, what's happened in the, that mutant strain is I, I sat on the mat has changed to I sat on the cat. Yeah, so it certainly is very different meaning, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, very different. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the cat would be very happy. Uh, so, Paul, you close that chapter by talking about your own personal experiences. And I really loved how you brought in your life experiences throughout this book, because it's certainly very relatable in terms of some of the experiences you've had. And one of them is something that is related to genetics and where you came from or who you came from. And I wondered if you could share with us that story, just because it was a really interesting one. Yes, it was an interesting one. And um, it, the, the background really is I it came from a working class family, not academic, living in northwest London in Wembley, where the stadium is actually. And um, I had um, uh, two brothers and a sister. Um, and um, the, uh, I was the only one who stayed on at school. Everybody else left school at 15 and, and so on. And uh, I went to university like you did and um, stayed in um, universities and did research and so on. So became an academic, um, whereas um, everybody else in my family did not. So being a geneticist, I did wonder why that was the case, but I didn't have any reasons that I could 
uh, give as to why that was the case. And many, many years later, I was in my 50s, I was actually president of a university in New York in the United States called Rockefeller University, a research university. And I was applying for a green card, that is a residence card in the United States. And uh, I applied and, uh, so that I wouldn't have to queue up at immigration and so on. And to my surprise, I was rejected. I was a bit surprised because I was, as you pointed out, knighted by them and I had a Nobel Prize. I was president of a very famous university and um, Homeland Security rejected me and they didn't like my birth certificate. Now, my birth certificate, which I'd had since I, I was born, um, named who I was and my birthday and that I was a, a British uh, citizen, but it didn't name my parents. It was a so-called short birth um, a certificate. And the um, US authorities didn't like the fact that my parents weren't named. And so I wrote um, back to um, the registry offices in, in London, because I was living in New York, and asked for a long birth certificate, which is, uh, you could easily get. Mm. And when it came, and I opened the envelope, or it, it was given to me, I looked at the, the birth certificate, of course, because uh, I was going to package it off and send it to um, the US authorities. And the name there for my mother was not the name of my mother, which astonished me. And then I looked more carefully, and it was actually the name of my sister, or to be more precise, the person I thought was my sister. Now, my sister was... 18 years older than me and I was left home when I was actually two or three years of, of age so I knew her um, but um, I, I certainly didn't remember her very well when she was at home though I saw quite a lot of her later and what had happened is that um, she got pregnant at 17 she was sent away to her aunt, it's like a Victorian novel really, um, and gave birth to me in Norwich, it's 100 miles or more from um, London and my grandmother came up to Norwich and pretended that she was the mother to protect her daughter so brought me back um, pretending to be my mother I was never adopted officially this couldn't happen today of course mm. uh, um, but I, I was never adopted and I was brought up thinking that my grandparents were my parents and although I knew my sister mother I tend to call people because everybody changed their position in my family. I sort of, well, she was my sister, now she's my mother, so it became sister mother. When I found all this out, by the way, my grandparents, who were my parents, and my um, mother, who was my sister, um, had all died. So I, I couldn't check all of this, though I did find somebody who confirmed it to me. And the other thing that might interest you is that uh, I looked for my father, and on this birth certificate, there was just a line. There was no name of my father. So I still don't know who my father is. Now, uh, the irony here, isn't it, Amy? I'm a <laughs> geneticist. I'm actually quite a good geneticist. Yeah. And yet my own genetics was kept secret by my rather simple working class family for over half a century. I only found this out in my late 50s. So mm -hmm. it is quite extraordinary. Yes, it does kind of feel like maybe you were meant to be in genetics and maybe that's Don't you partially think so? why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By oh, the way, amazing. I will say something. I should say yeah. something. They never told me, but mm. everybody was doing their best for me. I mean, they just, mm. uh, you know, I didn't have uh, any um, unhappiness in my life or anything. And it's just what happened then. It wouldn't happen today. 
um, and it was to, just to protect my mother. So I'm just grateful for everybody um, that they did their best for me. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And certainly, I'm sure it's not the only example in that time period. Um, it certainly wasn't accepted in Australia, you know, for young women at that age to have children, and they were often had their children taken from them. So um, it's really great that your grandparents, you know, kept you and looked after you so that you could stay with your family. It really was. And I, you know, I'd have quite liked somebody to tell me who my father was, I have yeah. to say. Um, but, <laughs> was he um, into science at all? <laughs> well, you know, I imagined that I imagined um, all sorts of things, but mm. um, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. No, it certainly echoes the idea in science that there are so many mysteries and so many things that we don't know. And even when you were looking into yeast, as you said at the start, when you were investigating that whole area I mean you pretty much didn't know about yeast and you I think I recall reading that you kind of sequenced yeast like various kinds of yeast and it took like a number of years to even do something like that that now would take a few hours it's absolutely true I I was involved in in genetics and sequencing DNA and the first genes that I identified which uh, now uh, over 40 years ago took a year to sequence just one small gene and you could do it actually even minutes now or, or seconds really mm. and uh, I also sequenced fission yeast my lab organized that and um, it was a third sort of big organism that was uh, sequenced and that took a hundred people. I had to put together a hundred people to get that done. We can now do it overnight with one machine and one person. It's completely extraordinary, wow. the advances. Well, it certainly probably means you can make more advances faster if you have a hunch. And you do in this book have a number of hunches that actually turn out to be pretty good ones. So it sounds like you've got very good scientific intuition as much as all the knowledge as well. Um, and I love the story of you, you know, chucking a Petri dish in the bin and coming back to the <laughs> lab after because you had that hunch. Yes, that's a funny story too. I was isolating yeah. mutants and they grow on this sort of jelly on a Petri dish and it's quite a laborious task I was doing and this particular plate was covered with a fungus so it was very difficult to, to, to isolate the mutant strain that I was very interested in and I already had quite a few examples of it and um, they'd all turned out to be the same so I thought it, this one will be the same as well but what happened is I threw it away I felt guilty about it I was living in Edinburgh I cycled back in the rain later on that night retrieved it from the rubbish as you rightly said and of course it unlocked it was the key that unlocked understanding how cells reproduce themselves because it was different to the mutants I had already isolated and it connected to another mutant and the whole thing fell into place and mm. yet it was on the edge of being completely thrown away and um, without me retrieving it from the rubbish uh, I doubt if I'd have won a Nobel Prize. That's amazing. In the context of Edinburgh, dark at night in the rain with all those hills and cobbled stone streets and everything, I'm pretty impressed that you did cycle back. Oh, yeah. Well, I it did take a bit of persuasion. The guilt <laughs> had to be pretty high, I'd have to say. Um, yeah. I just kept thinking about it. And then three or four hours later, I thought, I've just got to go and get it out. 
<laughs> oh, it's so good. I love it. And that is something that you talk about is this idea of how the cell cycle is controlled and you draw out a number of the scientific experiments that you conducted. And I was really interested in how three ideas come together. We haven't yet spoken about it, and I guess it's the elephant in the room that everyone's probably thinking about, which is evolution by natural selection. Mm, and mm. I wrote in my notes here, what does yeast, evolution by natural selection, what did those two things have to do with cancer? Well, you know, there's a couple of things here I'd like to say. One is, of course, cancer evolves. I mean, so the, uh, the, the process of, of e evolution by natural selection that gives rise to all the rich diversity of life is also the basis of cancer because the genes that get damaged that cause cancer result in those cells growing more than normal cells and so um, outgrowing them. And this is really the same concept of evolution by natural selection. But there's something else in here, too, that I really would like to um, talk about, Amy, which is this. Um, my lab uh, discovered the genes that controlled the reproduction of a cell from one to two in yeast. But, you know, if I'm quite honest, I mean, most people aren't really that interested in yeast. I happen to be, <laughs> but I realize I'm a bit odd. But they are interested in what controls um, the division of our own cells. And this was at a time when the human genome hadn't been sequenced. We didn't know very much about the genes that made up humans. And so a postdoc in my lab called Melanie Lee, she did a really exciting experiment that we never thought would work, but did. What she did is she took a library of human genes, in fact, the very first uh, library that was made, because this is back in the 1980s. And we sprinkled that library of human genes um, metaphorically, basically, but we sprinkled the genes onto a mutant yeast strain that was defective in the key controlling gene that controlled reproduction and would prevent a yeast cell from reproducing. And the notion was that if there was a gene in humans that did the same job as the gene in yeast that controlled the reproduction of yeast, then it could rescue that um, defective strain so that the yeast strain which was altered in this gene, would be um, growing because of the presence of the human gene doing the same job, should such a human gene exist, which most people thought was extremely unlikely. Well, the reality was it did work. Um, there is a human gene that does it. It did get transferred into um, some of the yeast cells. We, those cells grew. We isolated the gene back. We sequenced it. And it was remarkably similar to the yeast gene. Now, uh, what does that mean? Well, the uh, yeast cells diverge from um, the lineages that gave rise to human cells almost certainly over a billion years ago, probably 1.5 billion years ago. So what it means is, is that the mechanism that controls the reproduction of cells has remained the same for one and a half billion years. It's completely mind boggling wow. yet again, like the egg, one and a half billion years. To put that in perspective, dinosaurs went extinct only 65 million years ago, and this is 1.5 billion years. So it, a highly conserved mechanism, been around for one and a half um, billion years, and means that we can investigate how human cells control their division and their reproduction by studying yeast cells. Now, who would have believed that 
I mean, it, it just doesn't <laughs> seem likely, but it happens to be true. Yes. Well, isn't it lucky that you and your colleagues are that obsessed with yeast? Well, I'd say so because Very lucky. Now, now we can reveal the secrets, if you like, of how these complicated processes work mm. by studying a simplified version that then can guide the more difficult experiments that have to be done in human cells. So it's it's like the the breaking the boundaries and those working on, on human cells can follow behind because we've shown them the way to go. Oh, it's amazing. And Paul, there are a couple of chapters after those that we've discussed and we just mentioned evolution by natural selection and in the book you go through the three crucial characteristics that you need for that to take place um, that they need to reproduce have a hereditary system and the hereditary system must exhibit variability we won't get into all the detail of natural selection but i did want to give you the chance and ask the chance to hear about the last couple of concepts particularly life is information and life as information being such a crucial one that you point out and something that I know you're particularly passionate about as a, an idea and something to talk about when we're understanding this overall point of the book, which is what is life. So hopefully you might be able to share with us your thoughts on that just at the end of this interview to bring some of these threads together. I'd be delighted to do so. The two further chapters argue, as you've just very elegantly and eloquently said, that life is based on chemistry. Chemical reactions um, is the basis of um, what our cells do. And key to that is um, information, because life is based on information too. Not simply just in DNA, but it, it's necessary, the management of information to get life to work together as a whole. So life as information and life as chemistry are the two other ideas. Now, those five ideas that we've talked about, the cell, the gene, evolution by natural selection, life as information, life as chemistry, led really to these principles that I end the book with. And it starts with the idea that we use probably the greatest idea in biology from Charles Darwin, evolution by natural selection, as a key cornerstone for defining life because if you can evolve by natural selection then you can produce purposeful behavior without having a designer a divine creator and as you rightly just said to evolve by natural selection you have to be able to reproduce you have to have a hereditary system and that has to exhibit variability and if it does then the genes change somewhat and those um, organisms which are more effective and better suited to their environment will tend to out reproduce those that are not and so that results in organisms being more perfectly adapted to the environment so this allows life to form and uh, the idea that you are a, a chemical physical and information machine simply allows that to take place because that means that a living thing has a metabolism, can maintain themselves, they can grow and reproduce, and therefore produce evolution by natural selection. So these are sort of principles in thinking about what life is. And I speculate on the chemistry of life, I speculate on how this applies to intermediate life forms like viruses, and I also 
um, speculate on what life might be like on in uh, another solar system or elsewhere. But it all centers on the concepts that I've just explained, which if you look at the book, you'll fully understand. And really the bottom message is life is beautiful and understanding it is it's a great sort of intellectual exercise and it also I think makes us as individuals to respect other life forms more because um, in a sense um, we're related to every living thing on the planet. I explained that with uh, yeast some some of our relatives are distant some are close and we also interact with all these other life forms on the planet we're completely dependent upon them so for me, this is an argument for why we should respect and conserve other life, our biosphere, because it is our relatives <laughs> and it is, in fact, we're completely dependent upon them. Mm. And so these are these are ideas I explore a bit more fully in that book. You do. And um, and the thing that I think resonated on a very personal level was your gorilla story, meeting the silverback gorilla in, I think it was Uganda, and feeling this sense of connectedness, looking into the gorilla's eyes, seeing similar body language and behaviour in those gorillas, and saying that this idea that we're very closely related to gorillas, I think it was 96% in terms of the level of relatedness that we have with them, but the fact that it, it made you realise that's why we need to care for nature, but it also made me realise maybe that's why we feel so connected to nature, people who are more aware of their surroundings and have more, I guess, openness to these ideas is that perhaps that's why we feel this kind of inherent empathy and feeling and sentiment towards the natural world. Well, the gorilla incident was, in a sense, transformational for me. I, I mean, sitting there with this huge silverback only three metres away from me, staring at me, not, not aggressively, with some curiosity, and I was having a conversation through our eyes. He was recognising, it was a he, and I was recognising the fact that we have things in common. It was clear. And mm. um, it just, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, I feel like I do have that with other animals, but I haven't met a gorilla. So maybe <laughs> one day. Paul, it's just been such a delight to speak with you. And I'm so grateful for your very precious time and for taking the time to explain these concepts to us and your book overall, which is called What is Life? Understand Biology in Five Steps. And uh, I really can't wait to see all the great work that you continue to do, I'm sure, as a scientist. I feel like most scientists never really stop, do they? No, they don't. I, I shall never retire, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and taking the time. Thank you, Amy. It's been a great conversation.